Hi there, and welcome to this special edition of Osler Podcasts. My name's Todd Fraser. On this important podcast, I'll chat to Anthony Holly, President of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society, about the recently released guidelines for clinicians regarding COVID-19. Anthony, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast under such difficult circumstances. Oh, thanks very much, Todd. Good to, uh, good to speak with you. Anthony, can you tell us what the mood is like in the intensive care community as it's facing this impending pandemic? Look, I think everybody is is extremely concerned, um, but there's a sense of urgency to prepare and maximise uh, our opportunity to provide good care to Australians who, who subsequently become ill in this pandemic. So whilst there's a mood of anticipation, concern, I think there's definitely a uh, an overwhelming desire to deliver good quality care and prepare for what might be uh, quite a challenging period. Now, the, um, the Society has put a lot of work into developing these guidelines. Can you tell us how it went about um, going through that process? Yeah, absolutely delighted. So the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society, um, you know, it's one of those peak bodies that that uh, represents the critical care community and very early on about as far back as the 10th of February we recognised that we were in for potentially rough ride and we commissioned um, the uh, the establishment of some really practical useful guidelines uh, for the intensive care community and, and it's interesting Todd you know initially we put out an expression of interest to the membership for five individuals to be uh, to assist in the development of the guidelines, and would you believe within a 36-hour period, we had 35 volunteers. And uh, when I was asked how we're going to do the selection, it was very simple. We weren't going to do a selection. We were going to ask each and every one of those quality individuals to come aboard. Um, we also were very fortunate to get representation from the Australian College of uh, critical care nurses, um, so we had a, a bit, of, bit of a multidisciplinary flavour there, and indeed we were fortunate to get representation from, from the College of Intensive Care Medicine, and uh, indeed we had uh, several ID physicians uh, on that panel. And what we decided to do, Todd, is to divide the problem, if you like, into three big uh, areas and set about creating three workforces from those volunteers uh, to develop the guidelines. And we set ourselves a very ambitious target of putting the first version out by a two-week period, which, which in fact was achieved. And, and I do have to say at the outset that uh, Associate Professor Steve McLaughlin was remarkable in heading up this working group uh, and uh, under his auspices, uh, and leadership, we were able to generate those guidelines within almost a two-week period. We looked at three big areas, um, uh, protection of staff and sustainability. We looked at pandemic planning and, and what intensivists and uh, those working in the critical care space could do to prepare. And then finally, we reviewed the evidence with respect to management uh, of COVID-19 patients within the ICU and um, the implications for testing. 
So that was the overarching strategy we took. And then subsequent to that, we've uh, established a uh, best practice or best outcome practice group that's looking at some of the difficult decisions and how you can uh, potentially determine who can really benefit from an intensive care admission. Uh, and, and, and that is a, a very useful strategy. And then hot off the press today, in fact, we're looking at the genesis of, of a heat map or a real-time uh, appreciation of what is happening in the intensive cares in Australia. There's been an awful lot of press, obviously, as the pandemic spreads through initially China and then now through Europe. There's a lot of apprehension, obviously, about what it could mean in Australian intensive cares. What is the society expecting this will look like once the pandemic's at its worst? So I, I don't think we can speculate uh, on, on that, quite frankly, Todd. I think we can say, and, we, and I think it's useful to stick to the facts, we've got... Uh, We've got more than a thousand cases now, and and obviously we're clearly clearly concerned uh, about the rate of rise, and and of course that project uh, that potential trajectory. But without underestimating and downplaying it or doing the ostrich in the sand thing, it is worth appreciating that, you know, our first thousand cases seem a little bit different to the rest of the world, uh, in. In, in some regards, uh, when we look at Italy and the USA, it's fair to say that more than half of our cases are, are imported um, or, or from their direct contacts. And at this stage, we've got one of the lower rates of uh, COVID-19 positivity testing. We've had seven deaths of those thousand and um, those unfortunate individuals have all been older than seven, 75 years so far. A figure that I think is important to date is that we've had 20 intensive care admissions um, or 20 patients requiring intensive care from that uh, cohort. Now, this might just reflect how early we are in that initial spike and that we still to see a great number more requiring intensive care, and I think almost certainly we will see a, a large number requiring intensive care, but potentially some of those figures are, uh, are somewhat reassuring. As the saying goes, Anthony, we hope for the best and we prepare for the worst. What should units be doing now to prepare themselves? Look, I think, I think uh, that's you know, a very valuable question. And I would say, despite my previous remarks, we should be doing absolutely everything to prepare ourselves. And that's really preparation of the staff. It's preparation uh, of the equipment and it's preparation of the procedures. So I think with respect to staff, this is, uh, you know, if you turn to our guidelines, we make some recommendations there with respect to um, uh staff members that are senior in years, that they may be better served moving away from the COVID-19 clinical cold face and providing other valuable services either to non-COVID uh, patients in a non-COVID cohorted area. Perhaps they should be looking at more administrative or procedural type roles 
uh, where, that, where that doesn't require that sort of patient contact. Similarly, for, for your staff members with comorbidities, um, they should be given the opportunity uh, to, be, uh, to have less exposure uh, to COVID-19. I think staff need to be educated, they need to be prepared, and they need to be given uh, opportunities uh, to express their own concerns and their own strategies. With respect to equipment, that's a huge piece, and again, I'm very proud to say ANZICS is working very closely uh, with the Chief Medical Officer's um, office in, in Canberra and providing some degree of critical care advice. Um, Todd, if I, if I say, if I'm able to tell you that um, the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society has provided the Chief Medical Officer with a current snapshot of how many intensive care beds we have at the moment, how many intensivists um, we have, and what sort of capability we have with respect uh, to the delivery of dialysis, uh, with the numbers of ventilators as best we can ascertain and the uh, ability to provide ECMO. We've then used some very creative modelling uh, and undertaken a survey. The survey was undertaken on the 7th of March uh, this year and some 189 directors were surveyed and I think we had about a 75% response rate with about 155 or so, 154 directors responding, and they were asked a series of questions uh, pertaining to what their resources were and what their surge capacity was. And it was pleasing to see of that 154, everybody was thinking about surge capacity. And when we talk about equipment, we were talking about bed spaces, ventilators, um, actual real estate, where to put patients, and the potential to surge. And and, and ASICS was able to demonstrate through this survey that probably we have a, currently around 2,200-odd uh, beds, uh, intensive care beds, and probably a surge capacity to more than double that uh, by utilising real estate elsewhere in the hospital, by using previously uncommissioned beds, and by uh, uh, utilising other areas with, within uh, the hospital. So, so that's preparing the staff and the equipment, and then, and then ultimately, one needs to decide how your teams are going to work. If there's going to be a change in in work practice or work practice models, whereby maybe uh, the nursing ratio might have to change in very challenging conditions. But if it does have to change, it shouldn't be ad hoc basis, but rather a pre-planned strategy, perhaps. Uh, even as in our own institution, we'll take a good look at the roster and see, you know, how long do we want the days to be, how many days in a row, um, how we protect the staff should they become unwell, what would the testing philosophies be. And these are the things when you say, what should we be doing uh, when we uh, hope for the best but expect the worst. Anthony, it's fair to say one of the most contentious issues has been around the use of high-flow nasal oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. What do the recommendations say about this? So, look, the first thing to say is that our first set of recommendations that came out, not this Monday, but last Monday, um, make it very clear uh, that suggest that we do not recommend the routine use of non-invasive ventilation. And, 
And I guess a lot of the innuendo around that is that people are fearful that it's because of infection spread, and, and of course there's a risk of that. But I think equally important, if not more important, is the failure rate associated with non-invasive ventilation. So in keeping with studies long before COVID-19, patients with severe hypoxemic respiratory failure probably don't do that well with non-invasive ventilation. So our current recommendations are that you go from high-flow nasal cannulae, and if it becomes apparent that you're not able to sustain the patient in that setting, then moving early to invasive ventilation, intubation and invasive ventilation is the preferred strategy. What's the role of high-flow nasal oxygen in this? Yeah, as I said, I, I think very early on those patients that are, you know, we would suggest, uh, and I don't know if you've seen the uh, surviving sepsis guidelines on on COVID-19 management, their suggestion is to keep uh, their recommendations, they've got two recommendations there, one maintaining uh, oxygen saturations greater than 92% or and a stronger recommendation greater than 90%. And I think we would um, support that with the use of high-flow nasal cannulae. With the one proviso that there might be a place for uh, non-invasive ventilation in those very difficult patients pre-intubation to try to maximise your, perhaps maximise your oxygenation in that setting. Anthony, there's been enough time for us to get some information about what might be effective in the clinical arena in terms of therapies. What are the recommendations around these types of strategies? Yes, I think it, it remains very, very challenging to be quite honest, uh, Todd. I think at the moment we can safely say there is no uh, clear therapy that offers benefit. We know that um, there's some uh, potentially uh, beneficial uh, antiviral therapies that uh, may provide some benefit. Um, we know that lipinafir and rotanafir, that combination, uh, and uh, uh, interferon alpha-2b has, has uh, um, demonstrated some, some benefit. There's been discussion around the use of um, chloroquine, and indeed there's been uh, discussion around the use of, of corticosteroids. At the current time, there's no particular convincing evidence uh, for any one particular agent. Um, there's no evidence from a randomised controlled trial to support one single specific drug treatment against the, the coronavirus at the current time. Um, there's potentially uh, benefit from lopanafir and rotanafir, as I mentioned, uh, and, and, and the kind of doses that have been recommended at a, at a weak recommendation level, and indeed not in our guidelines, but other guidelines, is two capsules uh, uh, twice a day um, have been something that have, have been considered. Our own stance at this stage, until more evidence becomes available, that perhaps the use of any antivirals or specific therapies is probably best uh, utilised in the setting of a controlled study and and perhaps in order to, to uh, have clinicians comfortable with that, maybe an adaptive design, study design uh, uh, for, for those patients. But in the ANZICS recommendations, we haven't, uh, we've said quite clearly antiviral therapies are currently not recommended for routine use 
in acute respiratory failure with COVID-19. But we make the, it's an evolving area of research and this will change uh, as we move along. Uh, there do seem to be fairly clear signals of, uh, with regard to prone ventilation, high levels of PEEP and uh, a restrictive fluid strategy, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely, and we're recommending that. So I think the prone ventilation is one of the recommendations we make. The Praseva trial showed us in severe hypoxemic respiratory failure that had a mortality and, a, and an oxygenation advantage, and I think we should... Uh, continue to use that strategy and it's something that's achievable uh, in in many regards so so I think um, that's something that we would strongly um, uh, support the use of prone uh, ventilation and I guess responsible or lung protective ventilation strategies maintaining your plateau pressures less than 30 uh, lower tidal volumes uh, uh, all seem to be um, very simply um, applied uh, and probably deliver benefit. Um, with respect to fluid, I think it's similar. I think it's generic evidence at this stage that we'd want to try to avoid uh, pulmonary edema. And there has been an incidence, albeit a little bit late in the course of the disease, of significant cardiomyopathy with, with cardiac failure. So I think that would also argue towards um, a more restrictive fluid strategy. Anthony, there's a horrifying reality for many people confronting uh, this pandemic uh, that resource constraints may in fact result in the restriction of access to intensive care. And I think many clinicians had been hoping uh, for some guidance as part of these guidelines. What's the society's position on this? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. We're all concerned about it. And again, you know, there's no point in hiding away from the, the potential to have to make challenging uh, decisions. I think the first thing to say, uh, and, uh, you know, we as an intensive care community, we as an Australian community, need to flatten the curve to ideally avoid overwhelming our resources. And I think this is critical. You know, we need to have responsible social distancing fastidious hand hygiene, um, maintaining the two-metre distance, maintaining isolation when required, avoiding unnecessary movement and following all of the new recommendations that our government have put in place in order to slow the transmission, which in turn uh, will hopefully flatten the curve and then we won't see that demand. If, if it comes to pass that we encounter um, much more severe requirements for intensive care, then we, do, we have provided guidance for decision-making about ICU admissions and treatment, and this is a highly emotive um, subject and topic, and, and it's easily, the recommendations can easily be misconstrued uh, if you don't take them in context. So, look, the decision-making process, we've made a couple of points. The decision-making process needs to be open, it needs to be transparent, needs to be inclusive of the families and the patient's wishes or the patient's wishes and the family's wishes, um, and it needs to consider um, the intensivist's opinion. And quite frankly, similar ICU admission criteria should really apply to, to patients across all jurisdictions and 
and equally to, to all patients, those with pandemic illness and those with perhaps other conditions. Intensive care medical staff are going to still be required to consider you know, the probable outcome of a patient and how a patient is likely to fare uh, in the intensive care environment. And you and I are no stranger to making these decisions for, for patients where we really have to balance the, the difficulty and the challenge that an ICU patient has to face with the uh, likelihood of a satisfactory outcome. Uh, and, and so I think so long as we best apply those principles as best we can, I think um, we'll be doing the, the Australian public a good service. I did mention, Todd, in the very beginning that we've commissioned a group to look at uh, best practice outcomes uh, and try to identify patients that would really benefit from the intensive care and potentially those patients who were less likely to, to benefit from intensive care um, so as not to um, subject people to um, potentially unuseful uh, therapy. Anthony, this is obviously a very fluid uh, space at the moment. How do you plan to revise the guidelines over time? All right, so I'm, I'm very pleased that you asked that question. Those guidelines are currently in revision as we speak. Um, the first revision, so this was guideline 1.1, if you like, Guideline 1.2 or version 2, um, the discussions commenced yesterday with another teleconference and ANZIX aims to provide contemporary um, guidelines and in order to do that, we'll continue to revisit the evidence incredibly frequently and so we would hope that one week after releasing our initial set of guidelines, they are really that revision is based on feedback we've had from a range of um, experts and concerned uh, physicians, and so we'll endeavour to answer those questions or pro provide uh, greater clarity around certain issues, and then and then there'll be new developments and new issues that have uh, that had not previously come to light that we we think about be that new drug therapy or new information that's coming to light. And in terms of a timeline, we are looking to have the new, the new version of the guidelines out with around about a 10-day turnaround. So 10 days from now, you should be able to access the second version or version two of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society COVID-19 guidelines. And we will continue to update those guidelines uh, as as frequently and as relevantly as we can. Anthony, finally, the obvious question is, where can these guidelines be found? All right, so I guess the quickest way, because I'm a bit of a computer dinosaur, the quickest way is if you just Google ANZIX COVID-19 guidelines and, and you'll be drawn to the ANZIX website and be able to access those uh, guidelines in a PDF form and you'll be able to uh, download them at your leisure and print them at your leisure. My guest today has been Anthony Holly, Chair of the Australian-New Zealand Intensive Care Society, and we'll be posting a link to those guidelines in the show notes. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Todd. Good to chat again, and, and stay well over these difficult times.
Thanks for joining us on this important special edition podcast. For more interviews just like this, please visit our website at osla.force.com.